Um, we're now going to uh, pivot to Dr. Steve Grinspoon, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at Mass General and Harvard. Steve has run this remarkable study called Reprieve that uh, answered a question that we hadn't really thought too much about, but maybe wondered about, and that is earlier use of statins to prevent um, cardiovascular-related mortality, morbidity, um, and the results were pretty striking. Uh, I've heard this talk. It is, it's, it's very comprehensive. Um, Steve does a great job of explaining the, the why the study was done, but also what the results are and what they mean for us. So really looking forward to your talk, Steve. Uh, floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much. Can you hear me all set? Um, let me just put this in full study. Okay, um, thank you so much, uh, Michael. I really appreciate the invitation and um, from Henry and from IAS today. Uh, we'll be talking about the reprieve trial as uh, was just suggested. I'll tell you the context of the trial and some of the new results that we have uh, and hopefully engage in a discussion with you about potential implica uh, implications and implementation of the study. Uh, these are my relationships. Um, and these are the learning objectives, which have already been uh, passed out, I think. So cardiovascular disease is increasing in people with HIV, and this is contributing to a persistent comorbidity gap. So you can see here on the lower right, um, the top two lines are the mortality gap. That's closing in people with HIV, particularly with the more effective and greater uptake of uh, antiretroviral therapy. But you can see the bottom two lines over here suggest a persistent comorbidity gap. The comorbidity-free years are remaining uh, persistently separated here. And that is largely due to a series of complications, the primary one of which I think is cardiovascular disease. Uh, and you can see on the upper left here that even as cardiovascular disease is uh, decreasing in the general population. It is increasing among people living with HIV. Um, so this is an important sort of context for what we're going to talk about shortly. Now, what is the rationale for the Reprieve trial? If you look at multiple epidemiological studies, they suggest that cardiovascular disease has increased 50 to 100%, and there's excess plaque in such subjects, even at low traditional risk, and even when you control for the traditional risk, even among people at a young age. So it's a unique presentation, and it's not particularly marked by traditional risk algorithms. We know that antiretroviral therapy reduces comorbidities. The SMART study taught us that. But we also know that residual immune activation persists, even with good viral suppression. And that Persistent immune activation is likely an important driver of cardiovascular disease, as I'll show you. And that suggests that antiretroviral therapy alone is not sufficient to prevent cardiovascular disease in this population. We need something else. And that's the key question that Reprieve addressed. Now, why do we focus on statins? Well, we did because we know that they lower LDL cholesterol, which is an, a key driver of cardiovascular disease. But what you may not know is that they also affect residual immune activation and inflammation. 
And that has been shown even among people with HIV. So you get two for one when you use a statin therapy. You lower LDL and you reduce inflammation and immune activation, both of which we thought contributed to increased cardiovascular disease in this population. Tavistatin is a moderate intensity statin, unaffected by antiretroviral therapy with good LDL and anti-inflammatory properties. And I'll talk later about how the availability of this particular statin. So we hypothesized that the Tavistatin would prevent MACE through these effects, or MACE means major adverse cardiovascular events, would prevent heart attacks and strokes through these effects in people with HIV in that large population at low to moderate risk particularly those for whom statins are not typically prescribed under current guidelines. So the reprieve study population is shown here. Our inclusion criteria were, uh, we included those who were receiving a stable antiretroviral therapy, so everyone was on treatment. Those who were age 40 to 75, and that's because we calculated traditional risk score for that group. Typically, uh, risk scores are not calculated in younger patients, but we can talk about potential applicability to that population. There's, we enrolled subjects who did not have any known atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and we enrolled based on a hybrid algorithm of the pool cohort risk score and the LDL. So, for example, subjects uh, participants with an LDL score less than 7.5 were allowed in with their LDL less than 190. Those that had a score between 7.5 and 10, the LDL had to be between had to be less than 160. And those who had a score between 10 and 15%, the LDL had to be less than 130. So it was a sliding scale based on the pool core risk and adjusted LDL. The exclusion criteria are shown here on the right. They included use of statins, gemfibrozole, PCSK9 inhibitors, or known decompensated cirrhosis. When you look at the map up here in the lower, on the upper left, rather, the blue, blue symbols indicate where our sites were. And you can see that this was a truly global study with uh, representation in high and low GBD regions, including, importantly, Sub-Saharan Africa. So the design of the reprieve trial is fairly straightforward. These are asymptomatic people with HIV, as I just mentioned, all on antiretroviral therapy with low to moderate predicted ASCVD risk. And we randomized them quite simply to Tavistatin or placebo. We enrolled 7,769 participants between 2015 and 2019. And we followed these participants over time to look for our primary clinical endpoint, MACE, which included cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, unstable angina, TIA or stroke, arterial revascularization, or peripheral artery disease. We also looked at some secondary endpoints, including the individual components of the primary endpoint and all-cause mortality. We looked for predictors of statin effects, looked at inflammatory immunological and metabolic biomarkers, and we looked at statin safety, and importantly, on effects on non-AIDS comorbidities, including diabetes, infections, and cancer. Embedded within Reprieve was a mechanistic substudy, including 800 patients. And these uh, participants had uh, coronary CT angiography performed at baseline and then after two years, and also underwent deep phenotyping for immune activation and inflammatory indices. As I mentioned, it was a global trial, and uh, you can see that we enrolled uh, from 118 sites 
53% of the participants were from high-income GED areas, 18% Latin America and Caribbean, 8% from Southeast East Asia, 7% from South Asia, and 15% from Sub-Saharan Africa. So again, um, very wide uh, global population. Now, in terms of the baseline characteristics, they're shown here on this slide. And you don't really have to pay attention to the patabastatin and placebo columns because in such a large randomized trial, the two arms were exactly balanced. So I'd like to draw your attention to a few characteristics. So first of all, this was a relatively young population at age 50. Proudly, 31% were natal sex female, which means that we had enough females that entered the trial to make some important conclusions about that group. And that's really important for the HIV population to be able to draw such conclusions. Um, race was white in 35% of the participants, meaning that it was not white in 65%. So that's important for generalizability. CD4 count was preserved at 621. Uh, innator CD4 counts shown there. The vast, vast majority of participants were under good virologic control, consistent with the requirement of antiretroviral therapy. I want to draw your attention down at the bottom here to the ASCBD risk score, which was only 4.5%. And as I'll review with you later, when you look at guidelines, this is a very low risk score, a score that most providers at this time would probably not flag for statin for primary prevention. And that's an important point we're going to make in the trial. I also want to draw to your attention the LDL level, which was only uh, 108, so not particularly increased in this population. Now, in terms of ART regimen, the baseline regimens are shown here, and you can see here the combination of different drugs. The uh, INSTE uh, uh, group was 26%. It was mostly in high-income areas, but that did change over the course of the study. I just want to point out these were very well experienced participants in terms of ART use with almost half on ART for over 10 years. Uh, so that's, you know, they're well-treated um, uh, participants. So what happened in Reprieve? Well, Reprieve is an events-driven trial that had 85% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0 0.7 with 288 planned events. And our DSMB, which monitored us very carefully and was, of course, an independent DSMB, convened in a pre-specified look at the data at 75% of the endpoints, 75% of 288. And they actually decided to close the trial, which is very, very unusual with such a large trial. And they closed the trial for efficacy, and uh, which we were very happy about. And they concluded that there were no unanticipated safety concerns and that the benefits outweighed the risk of statin therapy and that there was no longer equipoise to continue a placebo-controlled trial. And these data were uh, published uh, in the late summer, early fall in the New England Journal of Medicine. I refer you to that article for the full details of the study. What were our primary and key secondary results? So the first result was that we had showed a 35% reduction in MACE, the primary endpoint, versus placebo. I just want to put this into context. The recent 
semaglutide select trial had a 20% reduction in MACE. The very famous canukinumab trial had a 15% reduction. So this is a very large reduction in MACE. Uh, I also want to draw your attention to the secondary endpoint, first MACE or all-cause death, statistically highly significant 21% reduction versus placebo. So we were really happy with this result. And these are the top line results of the three. Some additional findings are important. Greater than 80% remained in follow-up in both groups over time. This is remarkable in that we ran the trial through a global pandemic, COVID. It was a placebo-controlled trial in which the treatment was available to patients to be uh, prescribed. So uh, we did. We were able to maintain reten our retention. And this was really important to make the trial a robust trial in terms of its results. Adherence was excellent in the great majority of participants. The adverse event-related discontinuation was low in each group, so 2% in the tablet and 1% in the placebo. And the clinical initiation of a non-study statin occurred in 5.7% of the tablet and 9.6% of placebo-treated patients below the threshold of concern. And of course, we allowed the study uh, physicians to give a statin if they felt it was clinically indicated, but a relatively small percentage used a statin, and it was well within our predicted thresholds of concern. All events were adjudicated vis-a-vis -vis the relationship to COVID, and in fact, only one MACE event was definitely related to, got to be definitely related to COVID, which is interesting. So this is, these are further data on the primary endpoint, also the components of MACE. So first I wanna show you that study result was really robust and it main, uh, statistically, remains statistically significant uh, under different analysis strategies, including a wall on treatment and a per protocol strategy. I then wanna show you the individual components of MACE shown here. Just largely draw your attention to the point estimates. We're not really powered to look specifically at subcomponents, but they do give you a sense of what's happening. So first of all, for myocardial infarction, it was a 0.56 hazard ratio. So it was a 44% reduction in heart attacks. And for strokes, pretty similar reduction. And I wanna point out that there were equal number of MIs in strokes. And this was really unusual. We were not anticipating in such a young population to have such a large number of strokes that were uh, occurring. And we were glad that we were able to prevent them. Cardiovascular death was another a major subcomponent of MACE in this study. And you can see a pretty consistent effect to reduce all the subcomponents. This is peripheral artery, revascular, six events in the placebo and none in the batavia, which is why the point estimate is so far over to the left, which is, which is good. And I want to also mention that we characterize the type of myocardial infarction, type 1, is a typical supply type myocardial infarction and type two is a demand type. Uh, patients could have sepsis or be in significant demand of blood flow to the heart and have a small myocardial infarction in that regard. And we adjudicated that actually. And in fact, the vast majority of MIs were the traditional type, which is interesting because there was some prior literature to suggest more type twos uh, in HIV patients. But again, that was a retrospective study and this was prospective and adjudicated. I wanna look also at some effects on key subgroups. So 
this is a, a plot and here's the overall result. And I just wanna take your, your eye down and show you that largely the point estimates are very, very consistent. They're particularly assistant, consistent across major groups based on LDL, age, and sex. So let's talk about sex first. So, okay, right here, my pointer is, shows you that there was no treatment modification by sex. This is really important. This shows that women and men benefited equally from statin treatment. Let's look at LDL right here, very similar treatment effects. This suggests quite interestingly that there's no difference in the treatment effect whether you started the trial with a higher LDL or a lower LDL, which really brings to the question of what we're doing with statins. Are we getting the most benefit by treating LDL or is there some other benefit? This doesn't mean that the reduction in LDL doesn't matter but it does suggest there may be something else beyond that. Um, there was no, um, no treatment modification based on CD4, Nader CD4, HIV RNA, or ART duration. Although there seemed to be a much larger effect among people who were from South Asia, and uh, we're gonna delve into that in further studies. Effects on LDL cholesterol. And you can see here in the green violin plots, the placebo group, there's really no drift, very consistent uh, LDL levels. But in the batavistan group, the more purple-oriented uh, violin plots, it was a very consistent 30% reduction, which was a durable effect over time. And this is exactly what we predicted from this statin, which was a moderate-intensity statin. I'll talk about that shortly. So I wanna show you this particular graph, which I think is really important to contextualize the results of recruiting. First of all, this is a nomogram published by the CTTC Collaborative. It's, it's constantly being updated. But you see here on the x-axis, the mean LDL difference between treatment groups. And you see on the y-axis, the treatment reduction in cardiovascular events. So these are some of the giant studies over time. And I've taken the liberty of plotting the newest kid on the block, Reprieve, on this graph. So we had a 0.8 million mole difference between the treatment group and placebo. You go up to the regression line and you go over, and you might have predicted a 17% reduction in MACE based on the moderate but consistent effects on LDL. But in fact, we were here and there was a 35% reduction. So there was significant additional efficacy beyond predicted. And we're going to spend, I think, years delving into the data to figure this out, but I have some tantalizing tidbits to tell you about toward the end of the trial, toward the end of the talk. Let's talk first about safety, though. The DSMV concluded that there were no, no unanticipated safety concerns. Serious adverse events were similar in each group. The muscle-related symptoms were higher in patavistan, but were mostly mild, and only 1.1% versus 0.5% withdrew due to muscle symptoms. It's a really small number, and it shows you the importance of having a placebo-controlled trial to understand safety. Diabetes rates were increased in the patavistan group, 5.3%, but they were also increased in the placebo group, 4%, in that group developed diabetes. So, the difference was significant, but it was relatively small at about 
This increase was consistent with that seen in prior statin studies and was not significantly above rates demonstrated for the general population. And the protective effect on MACE was seen in those with diabetes. It's really important um, that even though there was a, a slight increase in diabetes, those patients with diabetes were still protected from MACE. It was a 50% reduction in MACE among those with diabetes due to the patavastatin. There was also no effect on grade three ALT or rhabdomyolysis. Here are the effects on glucose, which you can see really there are no effects on glucose, glucose levels. So that also begs the question of why you might, there might be a slightly higher incidence of diabetes. And we're working through that data now to try and understand this effect on diabetes, which is consistent across all statin studies. So let's talk a little bit about guidelines. These are the major AHA, American Heart Association, ACC guidelines for statin prescribing. And the red box here indicates the different risk buckets. Um, over to the right is the highest risk bucket, more than a 20% pool cohort risk equation, uh, increased risk. And those people are clearly at a very high risk and should be put on statins, as should all people for secondary prevention. Those people were not allowed in the trial. Instead, we focused on the people in the box. And you'll notice that our baseline ASCVD risk was 4.5%. It was really, on, on average, very low. And although the AHA did revise the guidelines a couple of years ago in 2019 to add HIV and, and other inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis, as risk enhancers, I think you'll all agree that very few clinicians were prescribing or considering primary prevention for this population with such a low, general, generally low predicted risk. And I think Repreviv taught us that that's actually not good medicine and that better medicine would be to consider a primary prevention strategy, even in patients in these lower and moderate risk categories for whom uh, this strategy was so effective. Let's talk about number needed to treat. This is a five-year number needed to treat. Sometimes the literature talks about a 10-year. So this is only a five-year number needed to treat. Overall, 106. Actually, when we look at the final database, which we're going to submit for publication soon, there were a few more events after we stopped the trial. This number went down to 100. But nevertheless, here are the data published in the New England Journal. So 100 is pretty reasonable, especially for a, for a, a strategy which is pretty low risk and cheaply and widely available. So you need to treat 100, approximately 100 patients to prevent a MACE event. Contextualizing this, aspirin is like around 300 and blood pressure meds are around two, in the 200s. So this is a, a very good number needed to treat. Now, as the baseline risk score goes up, the number needed to treat goes down. Um, and you can see that uh, if you look at the group, for example, between five and 10 that really for whom it's not known what to do. Um, the number needed to treat is only 53, which is a, a really good number needed to treat. If you're over 10% baseline risk, it's only 35. So these data are instructive. It's actually not even bad in the people with a very low risk. So that's interesting you know, that you could take from these data that even those patients with the lowest risk scores, because they're gonna have a lifetime of ongoing risk with HIV should be put on a statin for primary prevention. So what about the use of the pool cohort equation? 
Over here on the left is a graph that shows the risk score at baseline in the incidence of MACE. And this is in the placebo group. So first of all, you can see that there's kind of a general, very nice sort of uh, relationship. And the higher your baseline risk, the higher your risk of a heart attack. So the, the cool core equation is useful, but what this doesn't tell us is whether it's underestimating, particularly uh, as you'll see in women. Uh, and so we're really now working through the data to, to determine the degree to which this equation may underpredict events in people with HIV. And there's been some suggestion in retrospective studies that that is the case, but stay tuned for further data from Reprieve. Now, as I mentioned, enrolling women was a priority for us, and we had a whole campaign. We actually had Barbara Streisand involved in this, and we were we looked very carefully at the percentages of, of patients with HIV that were female across all the different countries, and we enrolled in them. Very proudly, we were able to kind of achieve those percentages in most, not all, but in most countries. In some areas, like Thailand, we had a greater number of females than were in the um, baseline population with HIV in that country. So we had a campaign and we were successful to enroll females into the study. And in the placebo group, when you look at the rates of MACE, it's interesting in that women, um, particularly in the slightly higher risk group of five to 10, are actually looking to have more events than men. And this is very unusual. In, in the general population, being a female, particularly a premenopausal female, is protective for cardiovascular disease, but we don't, that, that protection seems to be lost, suggesting there's something, there's an interaction going on with uh, being female and having cardiovascular disease with HIV. And so basically this begs the question of whether the 10-year ASCBD risk score underestimates more in women than men, and whether it's possible that systemic immune activation not well captured by ASCBD is driving MACE to a greater extent in women versus men living with HIV. And stay tuned for further data in this regard. So the results of Reprieve are specific to pitavastatin, but that has come off exclusivity, exclusivity now, and it should be more available in generic forms, making it, of course, cheaper and more widely available. Calculated that it, in the countries that we recruited, it would have been available in three quarters of those countries, meaning that it wasn't available in a quarter of the countries. It's, it's uh, and in that situation, our suggestion is to consider giving another statin that is well tolerated with ART. In other words, in our own analysis and thinking about this, we consider this largely a class effect. And I say that because there are other studies that we've done and others have done showing, for example, that a torvastatin reduces plaque in this population as well. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second. So, Statins do have interactions with ART. And I encourage you, if you're gonna put your person, patient on a statin, if you're not gonna use pitavastatin, you go to the University of Liverpool interaction checker and it's wonderful and it has all the interactions with various ART. Protease inhibitors, apropos to the prior talk, uh, do downregulate CYP3A4 activity and can increase concentrations of CYP3A4 metabolized drugs. Copistat inhibits CYP3A and can increase levels of statins. The exceptions here are pitavastatin and pravastatin, which are not metabolized through CYP3A4. 
A Torva and a Suva can be used in those on a PI, but should be initiated at low doses and titrated carefully. But they can be used. And in fact, as we know, protease inhibitors are being used less these days anyway. The favorins can induce statin metabolism, resulting in lower statin levels. Taking this all together, and again, still check the Liverpool checker, check this tracker when, when you do prescribe. Um, the recommended statins in HIV are, include Prava, Atorva, Rasuva, and Patava. Of these, Patavastatin, which we use, is a moderate intensity statin. We know it reduces LDL levels more than Pravastatin, so it's probably better compared to Pravastatin. But if you don't have it, you can use Prava, or you can use more high-potency statins, such as Rasubastatin. A slight anxiety with Rasubastatin is that it has been associated with more diabetes in certain studies, and that may be because it's a high-potency statin. So I'm happy to entertain any questions on this um, afterwards, but uh, summarizing, Try to use patavastatin if it's available. If not, there are a number of other statins, which is a really nice thing about this trial. It shows that there are many options in this regard. Now, we did look, uh, as I mentioned, at the mechanistic substudy, which was embedded in Reprieve. And here we got pretty fancy, and we used CT angiography to look for lesions in the coronary arteries in about 800 people. And you can see here that we look for lesions. Here's an example of a non-calcified eccentric lesion. And our primary outcome was non-calcified plaque. And you might say, oh, that's strange because I hear all the time that calcified plaque is a bad plaque. It's not really true. Cal uh, coronary calcification is a marker for coronary disease, but calcified plaque per se is actually less likely to rupture. The more dangerous plaque, which is predominant in people with HIV, is non-calcified plaque. So we specifically had as an endpoint, a pre-specified endpoint, to look at non-calcified plaque and non-calcified plaque progression. And then we also wanted to look at the very low attenuation, the lowest attenuation plaque. We had 90% power to detect a 6% difference in non-calcified plaque volume. Just presented these data, Michael Liu um, in our uh, uh, core, who performed the CT analysis, presented the data at American Heart Association. And in fact, we did see a significant change in um, uh, non-calcified plaque volume, which was excellent. And when you look at progression, in fact, it was a 33% reduction in progression of non-calcified plaque volume. There was also a significant change in the lowest attenuation plaque volume. So we thought this was excellent. And this may be a mechanism for uh, our effects on NACE uh, in the trial. We also wanted to look at some inflammatory endpoints. So we looked um, at key indices, which we've studied in, in other trials. And these were LPPLA2, which is a marker of arterial inflammation, very consistently elevated in people with HIV and also relating to arterial inflammation as assessed on imaging. So we were able to reduce LPPLA2 quite significantly. We also reduced oxidized LDL, which is a key um, uh, player in atheroma formation and, and inducer of inflammasome activation. We were able to uh, reduce oxidized LDL. CRP, there was a trend toward a reduction in CRP, but CRP wasn't really high at baseline in this population. So this begs the question of which markers are the best markers to predict MACE and statin effects on MACE. And 
This is just the beginning of a very comprehensive analysis. And we're going to learn from the sub-study and then uh, measure many, many more markers in the primary study just to uh, determine, again, which markers may be most predictive here. But so far, we have some interesting results in this regard. So in terms of next steps, we're going to assess the cardiovascular mechanisms across GBD regions. Um, no prior study has looked in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places. We're going to look at key effects in key groups by race, sex, and region, and by underlying CBD rates. We're going to try and assess the mechanisms of MACE reduction. Is how much is LDL lowering versus effects on inflammation? And are those effects on lipid oxidation, plaque stabilization, et cetera? We're going to try and look at and identify statin effects on non-cardiovascular events, including COVID, HIV-related events, and cancer, really important secondary endpoints. And of course, we're going to assess the accuracy, as I mentioned, of the pool cohort equation. So in conclusion, Despite HIV being considered a risk equivalent, no prior trial has assessed a primary prevention strategy for this group, who would not typically be recommended for the primary prevention for the statin therapy. And that among people with HIV, 40 to 75 on ART with low to moderate risk in a normal range LDL treatment with tavastatin was effective and prevents MACE, who will save lives. Consideration should be given to expanding treatment guidelines in this regard. Many, many groups have contacted us. This is in the works. The British HIV Association has already changed their guidelines. We're in contact, providing information to AHA, HIPMED, all different organizations. And I think you'll see changes in the guidelines. But even before, you could take the results of the trial and interpret them as you may. So I want to thank USA for the invitation to speak and Thank our participants, our site teams, funders, and the entire recruit team for making this possible. And I'll stop there. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Steve, uh, just fantastic study. Uh, you presented it in a way that's comprehensible. And um, I think it it really is a game changer in a, in a lot of ways. Um, one quick question I had was um, initially when, um, when I first saw the study, I wasn't sure uh, why patavastatin was used. And I think as you went through, it's pretty clear because of the lack of interaction. The other drug that's similar, as you mentioned, is pravastatin. My experience with pravastatin is that it's pretty weak. It doesn't do as much. Um, yeah. Could you just comment on that? And would would is there ever a time you can see using pravastatin? Um, I think... Um... First of all, you're right, it's weaker. And in the Intrepid trial led by Judy Aber, it was actually shown head-to-head -head versus metavastatin that it had a lower LDL lower. More ominously, it had a lower inflammatory effect. So so it's it's not a bad statin, but it, it is the you know, it's a pretty low, low, you know, low intensity statin. I think yeah. um metavastatin is a moderate intensity statin, and we know it's safe based on this trial. I think if you wanted something more high intensity, you could pick a Torva, depending on the dose, or you could pick um, a Resuvastatin. We did a prior study with a Torvastatin up to 40 milligrams, and it was safe, but it was a tiny trial compared to this. So I think as long as you understand the potential interactions, you can pick many off the shelf if you want. For example, if your patients are not on protease inhibitors, which is more and more the case, then 
you know, or Torva and Rasuga would be fine. You want to kind of, I wouldn't pick the very, very highest dose to start because you might have more muscle problems and then your patient's going to get frustrated and maybe come off, which would be a shame. So the point of reprieve is that you don't, you don't even need that much LDL lowering, at least with betabistatin, to get a, a very remarkable effect. Yeah. So probably, you know, moderate dose, uh, and you could easily pick a Torva or Vesuva if you wanted at, at modest doses. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that intriguing lack of direct correlation with LDL implies that all these sub-studies you're doing could yield a lot more insights uh, beyond the impact of LDL, that there could be a lot of other things at play. So uh, congratulations on sort of angling for all those answers. Um, okay. Here is, I mentioned earlier, we have a really sophisticated audience. And I think this question points that out. Please address the use of uh, PCSK9 inhibitors or bimpedoic acid in the case of statin intolerance. Yeah, okay. Great question. So PCSK9 is expensive, injectable, and it really lowers LDL. We don't know if it has an anti-inflammatory effect as much as statins, ironically. And it hasn't been tested in a trial like this among people with HIV. So, and you wouldn't ordinarily jump to PCSK9 in this context of people with an LDL of 100 or 108, because First of all, you, you already get 30, 35 milligram deciliter lowering with statins alone. And now you're in the range of 70. You know, to get it below 70 in a, in a primary prevention strategy is not really that necessary. That's different than secondary prevention. That's completely different than secondary prevention. Secondary prevention or familial hypercholesterolemia, where you must get the LDL down. You know, you start with a statin, you can add adenamine. That am right. And then you could jump in with a PCSK9 to really drive it down. And there's no, it was initially we were fearful that there was, you know, driving LDL levels too low could be harmful, but actually that's not been borne out either. You can really drive the LDL lower. So you could argue with me, well, why stop at 70, add a PCSK9? But I just, I think that's really going beyond the data right now. And uh, I, I wouldn't do that in a primary prevention situation. And I think the- Go ahead. Bempedoic acid is an alternative to statin therapy in patients who are intolerant. Um, and that's fine. First of all, I want to point out that only, there was only a 1% difference in the tolerability between treatment and placebo. The dropout rate was only 1% different in the treatment group versus placebo. So, so much has been written about the intolerability of statins because it's in people's heads, you know? I mean, but when you do a randomized placebo-controlled 8,000-person trial, you realize that the true intolerability is pretty low. It is not zero, and I'm and not at all suggesting that some people don't get side effects. They absolutely do, and uh, but it's a small number. You could try to rechallenge with a statin again. You could try to rechallenge at a lower dose if you're encountering this. You could try a different one. Um, some studies have shown that a lot of people don't get the reaction when they got a rechallenge with the same drug. So it's just very strange. But if all that doesn't work and you're stuck with someone, you could try bempedoic acid. Bempedoic acid in large randomized mega trials in non-HIV 
it led to like a 17 or so per percent reduction in mace. So nowhere near what statins would do, but they have not been studied comprehensively in HIV, although I believe Priscilla Shu and others are endeavoring to study them. Um, so stay tuned for that. Not a bad option, but probably not the first option um, uh, that I would try. Hope that's helpful. Um, what do you think of the uh, British HIV Association recommendation to prescribe the statins to all persons with HIV above age 40, not 45? And similarly, what do you think? I'll tag on another question to what about a recommendation to certain people who are of less than 40 years of age? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the British HIV. I, I, I think if you believe in, if you believe the data of reprieve, it will, it, you will save lives. And of course you notice the curves were splaying over time and there was more and more of a separation. So that with further time, people's, uh, risk score just keeps going up with age. And, and so I think it'll be more effective. In fact, on one of the slides I showed, it was very effective in people older than 60. Um, so that, you know, you're going to age into that group eventually. So I think, um, I think that's a reasonable recommendation. As to whether you should start this in people younger than 40, that is a very interesting and provocative question. I cannot tell you to do it because we didn't study it. I think though there is a, a kind of a logic to it in that, especially perinatally infected people, but even not, you know, you have a lifetime of inflammation ahead of you. Until we can figure out, and this is your on your guys' side, a, a therapy that gets it out of the T cells and monocytes and there's no more persistent immune activation, that's what's gonna be. And so I think, you know, you could you could have a logic and have logic in that regard to do that. But it would be beyond our data, and I think that would you'd have to have a conversation with your with your with your patients. And I think this whole all of reprieve suggests at least have a conversation about this now because we have some data finally. Um, yeah. Um, Dr. Mazura, did you have a question? No, I I, I just uh, I have the same comment you did. I think this is such an amazing trial in terms of the trial design in terms of the fact that we were successfully able to execute this and this very complex analysis. I think this is one of the most spectacular trials uh, uh, we've all seen in the last decade or two. Thank you Agreed. so much. Agreed. Thanks. So one of the questions came in about uh, number needed to treat to prevent MACE um, among the reprieve population versus non-HIV populations. Um, mm -hmm. Is that yeah. similar? Yeah. So. I guess the most analogous trial is Jupiter. So Jupiter enrolled non-HIV patients who had an around almost exactly the same LDL, like 107, but their inflammation was a high CRP. So in reprieve, it was being having HIV. In theirs, it was having a high CRP. And they got a number needed to treat, which was very similar to ours, considering that the baseline age in Jupiter was 66 versus 50 in ours. So even on age alone, their underlying risk score was much, much higher than 4.5%, which would put, have put them in the category of like 10 or higher, you know? And, uh, and our NNT in that 10 or higher group was 35. And that was like exactly what their NNT was. So it, it, it's actually, 
The other weird thing is that Jupiter was uh, stopped on March 30th by their DSMV, and we were stopped on March 30th. I mean, there's just so many strange coincidences with Jupiter, but I think uh, I was just being facetious, but I, but Jupiter does reinforce that, you know, the number needed to treat is highly generalizable, I think. Yep. Um, we're almost out of time. I do want to uh, get one more question in, and uh, it's more of a practical question that Ricardo Fernandez asked in terms of you got somebody who's feeling well, they're healthy, their HIV is controlled, uh, let's say they're 45 years old, and you come to them and say, take this cholesterol-lowering medicine, um, and your cholesterol isn't all that abnormal. Uh, how would you counsel a patient in that situation? It's a it's an excellent question. And I think I might show them the graph, you know, and you can look in the, the journal that... Um, that the number needed to treat, uh, sorry, that the effect on a mace is higher than you'd predict from LDL lowering alone. Right. And that there was no treatment modification based on baseline LDL. So yes, in effect, we are telling that participant that, or that patient that there's something beyond LDL that statins are doing. It's a low grade anti-inflammatory strategy. And it's a good one because if you turn down inflammation too much, you can actually increase risk of infection. That's what ha happened in canicumumab. Because if, you know, inflammation is an ancient process that's evolved to fight pathogens. And the body's trying to fight HIV and it's ramping up immune activation, okay? But if you turn that down too much, you might have sepsis or HIV or yeah. whatever. So statins kind of are in the Goldilocks zone where they, are you know not too much and not too little. They do it just about right. But I would tell that person that yes, there's there's other effects, and also that even though that person's LDL is normal at let's say 110 or 100, having an LDL of 70 is better than having an LDL of 100 or 110. So even though it's normal, the data and that's what that graph showed consistently reinforce that a lower LDL is better. Now, would I use PCSK9 to go from 70 to 35 or 30? That's probably a bit much. But would I use a drug that's a dollar a day, you know, uh, to get someone from 108 to 70? Probably yes. So I would use some of those types of arguments um, in, in such a person. And, you know, if they don't want to do it, that's fine. But at least you've started to have a discussion in next year, maybe when you plug in their pool cohort risk equation, and I really urge practitioners to go to the AHA website and actually hit the button and calculate it. It'll go up because they're age age one year older, and you can have an ongoing conversation. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. There's a couple more questions. If you don't mind, uh, if you have a moment, just to type sure. an answer to for those individuals. But thank you. That was an outstanding review of a remarkable study, and congratulations on getting the study to the finish line. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank You're you. You're welcome. You're welcome.